Welcome to this edition of the Simulated Universe, where we explore the boundaries between science, science fiction, spirituality, and all kinds of weird topics. Today I'm joined by Adam Curry, who I've known for a few years now. Adam's a tech entrepreneur focused on converting unconventional scientific concepts into new technologies and businesses. He's an alumni of uh, several top consciousness research organizations, including Princeton University's Pear Lab and the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Currently, he's a co-founder of several enterprises uh, based on new paradigm science, including Entangled, Luminos, and, uh, and we'll ask, tell us a little bit about those. So welcome to the podcast, Adam. Thanks, Riz. Happy to talk to you. Yeah, great, great to have you on. Uh, I know you uh, you know, you've been researching uh, some of these topics for a long time, going back to your your uh, research at the Pear Lab. Can you tell us a little bit about that first? Like, you know, what is the Pear Lab for people who sure. don't know, and what kind of research were you involved in there? Yeah. Well, the Pear Lab, uh, Pear is an acronym for Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab, and it's essentially um, a it was anyway a consciousness research uh, organization in the engineering department of Princeton University. Uh, it was founded by a gentleman named Robert John, who at the time was the, the dean of the engineering school. And um, to make a long story short, a student approached him um, one day in the late 70s with an idea to, to set up an experiment to test for psychokinesis, the ability of consciousness to affect physical processes outside of the body. Hmm. And he had no sort of background or interest in this particularly, but he thought it would be a good experiment. And uh, so he oversaw it, and it produced some very unconventional results. Uh, he said that's now, what did, his, what, did, what did his colleagues think of that? I mean, I know there are a lot of uh, <laughs> science types and yeah. engineering types who would be like, so, uh, research on psychokinesis, we can't do that I, at our university. I know, I know. It, it's a mixed story. Um, and I, I can tell it accurately from the inside. The, his colleagues at Princeton in private encouraged him to continue because they saw that taking the tools of engineering and physics and asking these questions about something that is uh, deep and important and unanswered, which is the nature of consciousness, is something that the academic institutions should be doing. Um, in, in public, uh, their support waned a bit, let's say. Um, and you know yeah, this is can, the seventies and eighties. Yep. <laughs> I found that so, as well. That mm -hmm. privately, you know, many researchers and academics are very open to these types of phenomena, <laughs> but publicly they are very careful about what they say. Yeah. That's right, and I understand. You know, it was a different world back then. Currently, consciousness is the big thing in uh, in university academic circles, but it was an unwelcome subject for many decades. Okay, and so how did that, that experiment then lead to mm -hmm. the, the parallel? Well, I'll explain the experiment a little bit because it, it definitely bears upon all the subjects that you talk about on your podcast. Um, the experiment involves setting up a device called a random number generator. And this isn't like a random number generator function in a computer where it just uses software to create some random number. Instead, you're looking at fundamentally random Physic, intrinsically random physical processes. In most cases, it's um, it's a quantum process. So the behavior of a photon under certain conditions, the behavior of electrons under certain conditions, 
radioactive decay. These types of things are intrinsically random. And are those the only things that are really random? Because, you know, in computer science, uh, you know, getting true random numbers is very difficult. Mm. It's it's the best we can do so far. I mean, there's there's a, a lot of thinkers that say ah, maybe it's not actually random, but um, as as far as, insofar as the laws of quantum mechanics are accurate, uh, these phenomena are intrinsically random. It's looking at the the very foundation of the very fabric of the physical world, as at least as far as we can, as deep as we can see into the quantum world. So you can create these devices very easily to look at the behavior of quantum level uh, particles or situations. I mean, do and, these devices actually? I mean, are they actually dealing with the actual photon, individual photons? Um, individual they they are actually. They are. Huh? So in in the early days of of the lab, we had a I say we. This is before I was even born. But there was a uh, there was a radioactive random number generator that had uh, decaying isotopes and sensors around that isotope. And um, depending on which detector was hit, um, that machine would represent that as a one or a zero. So you have this strings of ones or zeros, but it it was really representing um, unpredictable radioactive decay. Mm-hmm. But that machine was like 40 pounds and a hundred thousand dollars in 80s money it was ridiculous um, um, and that eventually developed into smaller electronic devices you can it turns out get the same effect using um, uh, electron tunneling which is where you hurl electrons at a barrier an electromagnetic barrier and um, through, meaning sort of teleport to the other side, or they bounce off, and you can um, measure whether or not it teleports or bounces off. And we're not talking about individual electrons, of course, but this is voltage differences amplified. And uh, okay. uh, that can you a nice uh, one stream of ones and zeros. But in the last 10 years, photon devices that can get down to a granular have become... Uh, viable in the lab. Yeah, you know, I actually saw one of those recently. I was doing, uh, uh, I was at uh, some experiments conducted by Tom Campbell, who's a you know advocate of the simulation idea uh, down in Southern California, and they had these measuring devices that could measure individual photons. But it was really hard to get down to just one because even when if you turned the light off in the room, there were still photons bouncing around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'd get to like tens of photons, you know, fairly mm-hmm. easily. But it was really hard to get down to single digits and have it detect, mm. you know, one photon. Yeah. Yeah, it's not so easy. Um, the devices that are being used now are these sealed tubes, and you'll have uh, an emitter. Um, that's sort of a highly controlled LED or laser on one side. And um, on the other side of the tube, you'll have uh, kind of an amplified photo detector. Basically, it's a glorified DSLR camera. <laughs> um, and you're not measuring the, the photon itself, but you're measuring uh, knock-on effects, uh, highly amplified knock-on effects of single photons. Um, and that seems to do the job. In any case, uh, it, it is actually getting to the level where we can look at the granular behavior um, indirectly of of single quantum particles. 
Okay, so back to uh, the experiments then, right? So you're, these mm-hmm. devices are random number generators, mm-hmm. and you're generating zeros and ones based on them. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so a, a random system will behave in a certain predictable way, and it's predictable in the ways that we understand probability and statistics. Um, if you have a string of ones and zeros, you'll get a Gaussian distribution. Um, you're, you're expected to get about a 50-50 balance of ones to zeros, right? Yeah. If it's truly random. Um, and so you can look at the outcomes and sort of sort the outcomes into columns, and you get this nice Gaussian distribution. Um, <clears throat> and the experiment uh, that was done at the Pear Lab and now many other places is to have an individual interact with that machine and attempt to, using only their thoughts, uh, nudge the output of that machine in some direction, meaning produce more ones or produce more zeros, just by thinking uh, or wishing you know, more ones or more zeros. And what is it you're thinking at that point? Is it just ones or zeros, or is it affected by other kinds of thoughts? Or? Good question. Um, the answer is we don't know. The lab in, in the experiment, the the people that are interacting with the machine are instructed um, to use whatever strategy feels good to them. <laughs> Meaning, if you uh, you know just intend to make the machine produce more ones, for example, do that however you'd like. Um, if you'd like to do breathing exercises or meditation or something like that along with it, you're welcome to. Um, but the key is that you are attempting to exert some sort of influence that is not an influence that is explained or expected by our current, let's say, mainstream perspective of what consciousness is, meaning it's kind of this illusion that's uh, withheld or kept entirely in, in the brain and doesn't have any ability to affect the world outside of it. Right. Yeah. I kind of like to say, you know, we're stuck in the 1980s PCs before they were networked, right? <laughs> Everybody right. is their own device. That's and right. there's no networking <laughs> is the currently accepted model. Well, so how statistically significant were these results? Uh, and, uh, you know, like how many ones or zeros were you getting? Like, well, yep. what was the deviation? Yeah. Well, it really depends on the person. So everyone can, it seems like everyone can do it. All people can do it. Some are definitely better than others. Um, some st- there's there's not a really clear between particular strategies and outcomes, but individuals um, will have stronger results, and individuals may have strategies that seem to work for them, whereas other strategies don't. Um, in the classic experiment, you would have the machine produce 200 bits per second, which is called a trial. So the mean is 100. Um, I mean, if you've got 200 ones or zeros, about 100 should be ones, 100 should be zeros, so the mean is 100. And you collect uh, several thousand trials uh, for each person, and you kind of put it together. Um, and uh, individuals all over the place, ranging from um, z-scores of you know, 1 to z-scores of even 5 or 6 we've seen before, which are enormous odds against chance. Cumulatively, so, so explain that. Like if it's yep. a z-score of five or six, like what mm-hmm. would that mean out of the hundred? If you're supposed to get like a hundred ones yep. and a hundred zeros, what would that mean? Um, a z-score is basically the um, standard deviation. So uh, 
in science, we say that something is significant if it has a probability of 5%. So there's a 95% chance that it didn't happen by chance. So, um, and that would be about, um, about one and a half um, sigma or standard deviations. Um, but to put this in, in human terms, um, the odds against chance of certain outcomes happening, we from one in a hundred to you know, one in 20 to one in 10,000, one in a million. Um, I've seen some people over the course of a couple of days um, even exceed that, even exceed one in a million. <clears throat> so you have to measure these things statistically. Um, you can think of it kind of like a flipping a coin. So if you flip a coin 10 times and you get six heads and four tails, you wouldn't really think anything of it. Yeah, there's not enough num there's not enough numbers there. Exactly. Really it's statistically significant, right? Yeah. But if you flipped a coin ten thousand times and you got six thousand heads and four thousand tails, you would know that something's up. Either the coin is imbalanced, or you're flipping it in a certain way, or in the case of this experiment, that your whatever you're doing mentally is being successful at nudging the outcomes in the direction of the heads in this case. Okay, so in this case, uh, you know, there was some statistically significant results with certain people, it sounds like. So it's dependent yeah. on the person. Would some, some people go in there and it's just 50-50? No uh, yes, some people would go in and, and see no effect. Um, some people would go in and see an effect that was opposite of their <laughs> intention. And so you have to account for all of this um, and you do kind of a cumulative experiment. Uh, cumulatively, the odds against chance of the pair database are something like um, greater than one in a trillion. Uh, one in a trillion, okay. One in a trillion, yeah. And then did uh, did that break out as a separate lab from Princeton to do this kind of research or, or from the engineering department or is it still there? Well, what happened is the laboratory existed from 1979 until 2007, and I got involved with them about 2000, 2001. And um, at that time, it really, it was it was really time to retire. So uh, Bob, who passed away a couple of years ago, he was already in his 70s, and um, it was time to retire. Brenda, who was the lab manager, the same. Um, and so they had done these experiments, and they had published good work, really good work, and they had some replications uh, taking place at research universities in different places. Uh, but they felt that the time was really appropriate to move into applications, that doing yet another publication, yet another experiment of this type is not going to move the needle. Uh, but what you really need are practical applications and um, other avenues for which these types of perspectives can kind of get into the world. Hmm. Well, but how, how accepted were their publications? I mean, were they peer-reviewed papers? Did other scientists accept them? Um, you know, because I've, I've mentioned this research now and now and then, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll get people saying, oh, no, those have been debunked. And I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the work has never been debunked. People have claimed to debunk it, but it, it those have not been sustained. Um, the, the reaction was very enthusiastic on the part of the general population, uh, lukewarm publicly on the part of 
the academic colleagues, their academic colleagues. Privately, it was much more warmly received. And there was a handful of ardent, dyed-in-the-wool skeptics who got a hold of it and just fought them tooth and nail and, um, you know, made a lot of claims of the validity of the evidence, which just wasn't really true. Um, and, you know, there's there's a subculture of skepticism that um, that seeks to sort of dismantle a lot of the work in consciousness. They used to go after the consciousness work. They don't really do that anymore. Um, the skeptics have kind of fallen off. Oh, yeah? Is that, is that true? Skeptics have... It is, have well, the skeptics of the of the psi research and the consciousness stuff, um, to, at least to me, seem to have uh, declined. At least the the strength of their voice has sort of fallen off. Um, but they've kind of lost the battle in trying to keep consciousness in a materialistic um, silo, right? Uh, I think the the last great effort of the this, this, the materialist skeptics was Dan Dennett's book, Consciousness Explained, which um, really didn't explain it. And, uh, right. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, it's, it's a topic that just isn't well understood. But what you're saying here is that there were statistically significant results of mind-matter interaction, mm-hmm. right? I right. mean, you so, were actually influencing physical processes with your mind. That That's mm-hmm. what the research showed, right? And, and you think that would be bigger news, right? <laughs> that it, it would be out there more, and, and either either more uh, people fighting it or more people talking about it, mm. uh, you know. But but it seems like people tr- in the academic world they try to ignore it more than anything is what I found. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's if, I think there's really more sociological reasons for the lack of acceptance of the the pair research, for example. Um, it's not really based on the quality of the experiments or the interpretation of the evidence, but it's just other factors. Um, you know, it can it can be dangerous to kind of get into this stuff as an academic. Um, you know, you're lucky yeah, to have I mean, a job in a university. Right. And you is, it, wanna... is it politics and you know, where mm-hmm. they can get funding? Uh, <clears throat> you know, I like to say it's, it's, it's not in the currently accepted paradigm. So the mental model is wrong, and therefore it, it must be wrong, right? <laughs> and so right. Yeah, something, and something will prove it wrong if it hasn't been proven wrong mm. thus far. I think that, that's kind of the sense that I get from people. Yeah. That, that certainly has been what it's like, although I think that's changing. Um, and I think that uh, we're going into a world in which we start to look at what are currently anomalies, things that are unexplained but persistent, um, not as things to be ignored, but maybe as opportunities, to learn something new, opportunities to make certain new discoveries, to champion things that um, are not only very promising, but also are intuitively correct to you. Um, And I have maybe a couple of examples of that, but it's just a a general feeling that I'm getting in a sense that uh, this is sort of the direction that that academics is going to be moving into, looking into all the stuff that we're talking about. Could it also be a generational thing, right? I mean, there was a famous saying, I forget who said it, but about <laughs> physicists, that you have to wait for that generation of physicists against an idea to die out. <laughs> but And then the next generation tends to be more open-minded. <clears throat> I think that's true. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so what are some of the uh, examples of uh, applications of this, this kind of research? Well, I don't know if there are any real applications, really like, let's say, killer apps, like things that uh, 
that really take advantage of these phenomena yet. And the reason is, be, is that when you're dealing with consciousness effects, for example, the effect of consciousness on some random physical thing, sure, you can pick it up, but it's, there, there's no consistent variable. So human beings are very different. Each one of us is different. Each one of us is different at different times. And if we're the ones that are driving the effects, then the effects themselves, by their very nature, are not very predictable. So it's very difficult to build a technology around effects that are not predictable, um, the, around effects the driver of which are, is constantly changing. So I think that if we, th this is more in the realm of like speculation, but I think that if we were to develop a, a technology utilizing these things, we'd have to think differently about technology first, meaning we'd have to maybe expand our understanding, definition, and expectations of technology. Um, I'm giving a talk in a couple of months about my attempts to do that very thing, however, um, with uh, kind of bridging consciousness research and synchronicity. And we can get into that if you'd like. Yeah, let's talk about let's talk about that a little bit. And does this relate to your Entangled app or? Uh, it does the, in a way, uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, let's talk about that. that. <laughs> so. Uh, <clears throat> there is there are a number of challenges to the theory of evolution that are mathematical challenges and i think that you covered this in your book the simulation argument right um about how the universe reality seems to be bio-friendly meaning there's all of these physical constants and things that have to be just so in order for life to exist at all right which would indicate that there might be some intelligence behind the creation of those things Right. I mean, it's kind of generally what people talk about when they say the anthropic principle, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> that, uh, That's right. Uh, you know, it's really odd that we're in the universe with just those parameters. <laughs> exactly. It is very strange. And, um, you know, I, I think that scientists have been reluctant to embrace that view, even though it's, it's quite clearly true, because there's an assumption, there has been an assumption that that is a theological argument. That, um, that you need to go away from the sort of predictable Darwinian theory of explaining how we got here and embrace some sort of um, creator. And um, they're not exclusive, but I don't think that that's necessarily the case. One example, or one potential counter explanation would be the simulation argument, meaning that we live in a, we live in a simulation um, and the biofriendly properties are just properties of, of what was programmed for us, which I think is a perfectly viable explanation. Another is that it, consciousness is actually a thing that affects probabilities in a way that makes the, the statistical absurdity of existence not so absurd. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you can imagine a, the, so Darwinian theory is like, a, you have this, um, unlikely mutation that results in some sort of advantage that favors um, favors the ability of the organism to survive and thrive and, th and therefore reproduce. And you can kind of back into the math and you do all these crazy statistics and it, it turns out to be extraordinarily astrologically un uh, astronomically unlikely that all of these things happened. To the point where... Right, because you're relying like, on, on random chance, right? And then because many, you're many relying on random yeah. chance. 
But what we know about consciousness is that it can nudge random chance. It can actually nudge the, the underlying probabilities of the physical things around it. So um, without that, you're not seeing the full story. So it could be that the ability of consciousness to affect its world is also the ability of the consciousness to bring things to it that it needs for its survival, its growth, and its evolution. So in our modern life, this is what we call synchronicity, right? Um, you, you needed help with something and you met somebody who happened to be able to help you do that, right? Um, right, at just the right time, right? At yeah. just the right time. Uh, you're starting to feel ill and you meet somebody who tells you about this book that has this, uh, that it's about this new supplement that is helping people in your case and you take the supplement and you get better. Like Stories like this, right? Yep. And, and so how would you define synchronicity? Now, there have been a lot of different, you know, <laughs> different examples of it and we ta- and I talked about synchronicity on this podcast and in my book a lot. Mm-hmm. But what's your basic definition of synchronicity? Well, I think synchronicity are uh, is it's the ability of the mind to understand events that happen to it in some meaningful context. Um, I I think that Consciousness actually creates synchronicities. Uh, I don't think it's just that we're retrofitting meaning on otherwise random events. But I think that there's a proactive um, capability or or something like that where some deep part of ourselves are bringing to us events, people, situations that are somehow meaningful to where we are in life, maybe at that moment or where we are in general. And so... And I think this is just what consciousness does. Um, so there's an experiment that I'm that I'm rerunning right now. I'm calling it the plant experiment because I'm I'm not creative with names. Um, plant as in the, plant uh, experiment, and it's okay. it's really getting to the heart of this synchronicity conversation, this evolution conversation, this technology conversation. It'll, it'll all kind of wrap it up together. Okay. So I'll, I'll explain the experiment, and it will make sense. So there's, I have a box, and the box has eight different, um, com- like uh, compartments, the small box, and each compartment is uh, totally shielded from all light. In the top of each compartment is an LED growing light, so it's a full spectrum uh, light that can feed plants. And the light will shine for a period of time randomly in each of these boxes. And I can I can um, record how much time the light is shining in each of those compartments. It can only shine in one compartment at a time. And then in one of those compartments, I have a small house plant that okay. needs Okay, so this light. is kind of like an updated version of Schrodinger's cat <laughs> with, exactly. with the plant. <laughs> yes. Sure, sorry, keep going. <laughs> And um, so I have a, a small house plant that needs light to survive. And I will put it in one of these compartments. And then I'll record how much time the light is on in each of them. And when, I originally, when we originally did this, um, we did it a little bit differently. But what we found is that the light shone on the plant uh, far more often than it showed anywhere, shown anywhere else. 
Now the, Even though it was supposed to be completely random. Completely random. And you're using a like a quantum random noise source. So <clears throat> I think this is a very simple but profound experiment, maybe even more profound than the, the mind-matter stuff of the Paralab, because you're using not intention so much as just life itself. Mm-hmm. I think we would all agree that a plant is alive, and at least I believe that a plant has some kind of consciousness by virtue of it being alive. Right. So you think the consciousness of the plant affected the light being on more in in the compartment where the plant is? Or could it be the consciousness of the people around, like you and others? It always be. Do you guys – do you know where – which one – because you put it in there, right? So you you would never know. know. You would never know. So – but that's actually the exception that proves the rule in a way because the – a positive outcome for the experiment is meaningful to me. Right. Um, so right, because you're the one doing the experiment, right? Exactly. Well, so the, the question is, experiment. if a skeptic did the experiment, would he get the same results, right? That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> the skeptic's mind power is stronger than a plant, and <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> or would it still be that the plant consciousness uh, exactly. is enough, or or or, or bioenergy, or whatever it is that the plant has, right? Um, cool. So how does this tie to synchronicity? Okay. So that's the framework that I want people to think about is this plant, just basic life of, um, affecting the world around it to bring it what it needs. So how can you turn that system into something useful for a human? Well, uh, some friends and I have been playing with that for a couple of years now. And this is, we've, we built this system that has a, a random number generator, but instead of controlling the lights, it sends us messages uh, on our mobile phones. Uh, the way that it works is um, you'll have some person, and that person will uh, have a mobile phone that we can enter into a computer phone number, and the random number generator will be... Uh, producing uh, an even number of ones and zeros and then at some point it will start to um, it'll start to produce more ones I guess it'll start to show a, a deviation pattern from the mean and at that point a computer recognizes that the the uh, pattern has started to change and it will use the random number generator to pick a message from a pool of messages let's say we've got um, hundreds of messages uh, say different things and it'll pick that, and it'll text it to that phone number. And what so, kind of messages are these? Are these like fortune cookie type messages? Yeah, they- you could. They're all <laughs> over the place. Um, yeah. Some from fortune cookies. Some are just words. Um, but the key thing that we've, we're finding, we've been finding, is that these messages arrive at times that are highly relevant to what we're doing or thinking at the moment. Um, it's it's kind of spooky, actually. So, for example. When we first set this up, we were going to look for an office space. And so we go meet the gentleman who's showing us the office, and both of us immediately got really bad feelings about this space uh, and the gentleman who was showing it to us. And as soon as I, well, maybe 30 seconds into being into the, into the office space, my phone buzzed, and I looked at the phone, and it was a message that said, run. <laughs> run. <laughs> Um, 
I have I, I have hundreds and hundreds of these stories. Uh, I have another friend who got a message on her phone that said duck uh, a couple of seconds before lightning struck the, the building she was in. Oh, wow. Interesting. Um, and actually, I have a story of that with you um, the first time that we met. I don't know if I ever told you. Right. You might have mentioned it. So we met in Mountain View, I think, right? Back That's right. A couple, a couple years ago. We met so. in Mountain View some years ago, and I had had this thing running. And uh, I remember as, as we were shaking hands uh, to say goodbye, I felt my phone buzz, and I was walking uh, away back to my car, and I looked at the message, and it said it was from this random number generator, and it said, a firm handshake will form the basis of a solid friendship. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And, and it happened right when we were shaking hands. Literally <laughs> as we were shaking hands. Um, yeah. I used to get them just before I would turn my phone on, my, my, turn my phone off on a flight. Um, I, the message that I would always get was, soon you'll be far above the clouds. And that would be the last thing that I would see before... <laughs> So, so, and, and these, these, there are many stories like this. Of course, not every message is as profound and synchronistic. As, yeah, as I mean, the, that's what, that's where you'll get, you know, some of the skeptics say, well, you have to count the messages that didn't mm-hmm. uh, go so well. But, you know, I believe meaning is a subjective thing and that something that's meaningful to you will be different than something that's meaningful to me or somebody else. And, that's right. and therefore you have to kind of look at the impact on you know, where that person is and what they're thinking about at that moment in time. That's right. That's right. So we're playing with uh, building this into an app right now um, that can give people these experiences and kind of create a, a community of people who are exploring and sharing synchronicities. And uh, this can be maybe a tool to help us make better decisions, to navigate the world while being in touch with a deeper part of ourselves um, who's maybe responsible for affecting the system in just the right way to send just the right message at just the right time. To what end? So, you know, I, I mean, I've talked a little bit about synchronicity in this book and more in my previous book, mm-hmm. Treasure Hunt, and, you know, there's the religious or spiritual perspective <clears throat> that maybe these are messages coming from guardian angels, uh, you know, karma. Said so then there's the, the more scientific side that says these could be messages from our future selves. Um, and then obviously there's the view that these are just random. Uh, but you know, to to what's your what are your thoughts on you know, what is causing the synchronicity and uh, you know where is it guiding us to? Mm-hmm. Well, I think synchronicities show up in our lives in different mediums. Um, Sometimes it's through the people we know. Sometimes it's through um, YouTube videos we watch. Um, and sometimes it's uh, just being in the right place at the right time. And um, and sometimes yeah. it's spam, right? <laughs> and sometimes it's spam. And maybe in the future it'll be a synchronicity app. Um, right. So is this, is this an app that you're working on now that people can – maybe get soon or is it uh, kind of still in a research phase uh, we're actually working on it now um, we're kind of building out some some different ways of, of generating data which are very exciting and um, we'll, we'll have to talk about that again when we uh, on another podcast I guess when we're <laughs> sure yeah to when we get closer it. to yeah. releasing it absolutely
Cool. So, so this research ties to to synchronicity um, because it's really a case of consciousness affecting the world around us or rearranging things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I, I had uh, I was speaking with uh, Dr. Jacques Vallée um, a little while ago, and uh, you know, he gave a talk on uh, synchronicity may just have something to do with the structure of the world if we live inside a information-based universe. I mean, he wasn't necessarily using the simulation uh, hypothesis or argument per se, but it was the same idea that if you're storing information in a computer, you know, you would store things based on how they're associated with each other. And so it may mm-hmm. just be the natural result of how the universe compresses and stores information. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fine perspective. It's this type of thinking I think will characterize how we come to understand consciousness and its role in the physical universe um, in this century. It's got to be something like that. Hmm. That's great. Cool. Well, uh, so let's talk shift gears a little bit, and I wanted to talk about the Mandela effect because I know you you gave a talk on that and have some mm-hmm. thoughts on that. Unless unless you want to talk more about the applications of the random number generator. Um, no, we can talk about Mandela effect. Yeah. Actually, before we do, uh, you know, you also invented this mood lamp thing, right? Oh, right. Um, a few years ago. Maybe you can just talk a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. I, I think some people might find it interesting or, or strange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was something that some friends and I did at this uh, sort of R&D company called Cyleron. But basically, after the Paralab closed its doors, um, some friends and I, we wanted to create consumer products that would allow people to experience the random number generator stuff in a non-scientific way, um, not through graphs and and uh, mean shifts, but through more intuitive feedback. So we built this lamp that's this color-changing lamp. We called it the mind lamp. And um, basically, it would the lamp could turn different colors, and it would turn these colors based on the behavior of a, an internal random number generator. So the idea is that you could uh, try to affect this lamp with your mind. So you'd plug it in and it'd glow white, and then you'd think of a color. Let's say I want to make it turn blue. And so you'd think blue at this lamp, and uh, most of the time it would turn blue. Um, or you'd think so, red and try to get it to turn red. So you just think of the color, and mm-hmm. the lamp would turn the color. And, and how often would you say that worked? Or is it, again, the same kind of thing where it depends on the person? Like with some people, it almost always turns the color they're thinking, and with other people, it turns a different color so what's interesting is we found that about 90 percent of the time the first time somebody tries it regardless of who they are they will nail it like bang on nail it and then um this the third and fourth times that they try it kind of declines and it gets to a little bit above chance and we we saw this in the, the laboratory data and i think we see this in our own lives with something called like the like beginner's luck right so the first few times that you do something, um, you kind of nail it for whatever reason. And it's, it, was, it was the same with, with the lamp. A couple of years ago, I had a, uh, a grant from the city of San Francisco actually to build um, an art installation right on Market in Powell. And so I took the opportunity to build a life-size mind lamp. Um, it, was, it was eight feet tall, and you could walk into it. And um, it was kind of this dome, and uh, inside the dome it was glowing white, and there was just a little message that said, think of a color, and that was all. 
So you know, I might have seen this. I, I don't think I ever stepped into it, but I think I might have saw it. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. A lot of people saw it because you know that's that's Ground Zero in San Francisco. Yeah. And um, so over the course of uh, a couple of days of just hanging out there and watching people use it, I saw there must have been 10,000 people go through that uh, installation. And yep, about 90% of people got it the first time. And then it sort of declined in, until being slightly above average. And what, why do you think that is? Is it that we're thinking too much at that point? <laughs> I think that's part of it. We're thinking too much after that. Um, in, in the Zen world, there's this concept of the beginner's mind. And the beginner's mind is like the pure way to approach anything. If you approach anything with a beginner's mind, you're not expecting yourself to be successful um, you're, you're approaching it because it's fun, it's novel and interesting. And I think the, the key thing, when you do something the first time, it's meaningful. Um, it's always meaningful when you do something the first time and it becomes less meaningful the less often you do it. So again, we have meaning that we have meaningfulness showing up and being sort of the driver of these effects, particularly these anomalous effects. So, um, you know, one of the things that I've sort of realized in 20 years of working in unconventional science is that anomalies accumulate around meaningfulness. And that's true in our, at least that seems to be true in our personal lives. That's definitely true, I believe, in the scientific community. We saw it directly at the Paralab, but elsewhere in conventional science, I think it's going on. I don't think that a lot of people, a scientists, are really talking about it directly. Um, but there's a, a gentleman named Jonathan Schooler, I think, at um, Santa Barbara, and he's done some incredible research showing that um, there's a decline effect that happens across the whole domain of scientific research, where the first time they'll do an experiment, they'll get really positive results, and then it just declines, <laughs> like, it, uh, like the effect goes away. And okay. if you were to try to explain that conventionally, it'd be like, ah, well, you just got lucky or you refined the Yeah, the effect, doesn't, the effect doesn't really exist, they'll say, right? Exactly. Because it can't be reproduced, right? But what, you're, what I think you're actually seeing is the, is the fingerprints of meaningfulness on the part of the experimenter showing up in the outcome. But are you saying that the, the people who are doing it later don't want it to happen? It's not necessarily the case, like with the, the mind Oh, they lab. do want it to happen. Yeah. Yeah, right. they do want it to happen, but, um, but there may be something in the conscious it. mind that's blocking things. You know, I, exactly. I think you're onto something with your Zen mind. I, you know, because I talk about the Matrix a lot, uh, and we're talking about mind over matter. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll mention this idea of spoon bending, and that's one of the things that drives people crazy because they say, "Oh, that's been totally debunked, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. There's no such thing as spoon bending." But you know, there was a researcher, Jack Hauk. I think it was at Stanford, and he he eventually would do these spoon bending parties, and you know he told he found that many people could in fact you know bend spoons that they brought to this party, and he would he did this at Los Alamos once, and he did it with a group of physicists uh, and their wives, and he found that when the physicists were there, none of them could actually bend the spoons, but their wives could, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and it turns out. It, 
even the physicist could when the other physicists weren't around, right? Uh, okay. So there was something about being with their colleagues that was enforcing a certain point of view. Uh, and uh, anyway, this is, you know, I, I get into a lot of hot water for even talking about this in, in, mm -hmm. in the scientific world. But, you know, it's another case where, you know, mind over matter seems to work sometimes, but not other times. Mm. Yeah, it's a good example. It's a good example. <laughs> I mean, there's, you're getting really to the heart of it, which is that there, are, there's a deeper part of us, like the sort of subconscious part of us, that seems also to be the domain of our belief systems, meaning our beliefs or perspectives about how the world works. And this kind of plays traffic cop with anomalous functioning, I think, meaning maybe alone we can have, we can create certain effects or around certain people, like the magic can happen. But uh, around other people, that goes away. Um, in other conditions, that, that goes away. Um, and I think there's, there's something really deep here. This is maybe why when people had to do, uh, there's always this, this picture of these witches, right? Like, you know, in the, they are doing spells and they can't do spells in the center in town square, you know, at noon, right? They have to... Um, leave the town and go into the woods with a trusted group of other witches under the cover of darkness um, and just like move away right in order for the magic to happen you know to do their incantations and, and make spells just talking here about you know in, in terms of um, like uh, archetypes right um, or the monk who has to leave the tribe and go you know hide in a cave and meditate in order to you know reach his enlightenment or you know make crazy things happen and I think what, what's going on there is a couple of things. One is that you have to get away from the, the counter effects of the belief systems of other people that would not allow your magic to happen. And you have to give your own self permission at a deep level to produce the anomaly, to produce the, the physical effect in the world, whatever it is. So is this touching on the idea that there's a consensus physical reality um, mm. and that it's being influenced by multiple observers I guess yeah yeah that's that's my perspective at least that's kind of my working perspective is that just saying reality is is not really getting at the heart of it it's really more like a consensus reality and that consensus reality changes depending on how you draw the lines so there's the whole there's the consensus reality of the planet but then there's consensus reality of a group of people of a company of your family and, and a consensus reality of view as well. Right. So, yeah, we're definitely touching in on, on some very deep <laughs> ideas here. Uh, you know, I, I like to sometimes say that we're all rendering the world on our own computers, right? <laughs> Just like mm -hmm. in, a, in a multiplayer video game. Uh, but that there is information shared, and so there are elements that are being influenced by everybody else. Um, I have a story about that. Sure. <laughs> it, it involves it involves raccoons. Uh, so I have a I have a colleague who lives in Sedona and she has a big backyard with a lot of raccoons and um, she's a retired scientist and she uh, wanted to do an experiment with a raccoon so she got a hold of one of these random number generators and she connected it to a feeding machine such that at random times this machine would spit out a single pellet of food. So just sitting there out in her lawn, 
and randomly spitting out a pellet of food. And so she set up a video cameras and started recording uh, what happened with the raccoons over the course of a week. So the first raccoon walks into the yard, goes over and checks out the, the machine, smells that it has food inside and tries to, you know, sets out trying to get at the food, right? And he's pawing at it and scratching at it and he can't seem to get it to work. And so at one point he walks counterclockwise three times around the machine and bingo, out comes the pellet of food. And she said, <laughs> this light bulb, and it was just random, you know, yeah. that this, and and so she said that the she the light bulb goes off in in the raccoon's head, and he walks three times again around the device, and out comes the food, does it again, and out comes the pellet. So what's happened is that the raccoon has interpreted an otherwise random event as as being um, related to some like a procedure that he did, or some ritual, or some something that he did, right? And um, so he thinks that he's figured out how to make the pellet, you know. Because it happened twice, right? It happened twice. (laughs) So he goes away, and then more the next day, there's more raccoons in the yard, and same thing. They're trying to figure out how to get the uh, the food out, and here comes the first raccoon, and uh, he's like, "Stand back, everyone!" And so he he walks three times around, and out comes the food, and and uh, so another one does it, and so they think that they've figured this out. But really what they've done is um, they have internalized some sort of belief about what's necessary to make the outcome happen. And uh, in a way, that was the what she witnessed was the building of a kind of consensus reality among the raccoons. Or they're not it's not that they really figured out how the thing worked, but they figured out how to get the outcome that they that they desired. And they produce some sort of somewhat repeatable phenomena through consensus. Hmm. And then they <laughs> would walk around <laughs> clockwise, and, and and it would actually work, though, right? Often, mm, it would, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Well, now that we're talking about consensus reality, is a good good time to transition to talk about the Mandela effect, right? Yes. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, most people have probably heard of it, but maybe you can just give an example of it, and then. Uh, tell us your take as a as, as a scientist and and your thoughts on what could be causing this, this strange phenomenon. Some people think it doesn't exist, but I think that it's hitting on something deep in reality as well. <laughs> I'll give you my take as a mad scientist. Let's put it that way. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, the Mandela effect is eponymously named for Nelson Mandela. Um, there's a a group of people that believed that. And, and swear that they remember him dying in prison and watching his funeral on television. However, that's not really what happened. Um, at, at least, least in our an, timeline. At <laughs> least in our timeline. There's another group of people that say, no, he died in 2013. Um, you know, and I don't know what you guys are thinking. So we have this this situation where there's there's two big groups of people who believe in of the past. So the Mandela effect now is a blanket term describing uh, what happens when people believe one thing and and a lot of people believe one thing and it turns out to be slightly different. Um, It's the technical term is called alter vu, kind of like deja vu, but alter vu is remembering reality different than it differently. Um, So one example would be like the bridge to Ellis Island 
Ellis Island, which I never remembered seeing. I people Island, but sure enough, there's actually a bridge to Ellis Island. Hmm. Um, okay, so it's basically when a group of people remembers something that's different than what's at least in our consensus reality right now. Uh, so it's almost like you have a minority and a majority <laughs> consensus about what they mm-hmm. remember, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so why isn't this just people misremembering stuff? <laughs> in, well, I think a lot opinion. of it could be. I think a lot yeah. of it could be misremembering. Uh, there's like there's different there's different common explanations for this, and they 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 certainly range. Um, the most common explanation is cognitive bias. So memory is imperfect. And we might be, there's reason to think that we're misremembering certain things. Um, there's the parallel universe argument, which is to say that uh, actually that was real, but your uh, you, the universe split at some point, and um, you're, and you're remembering, remembering from the this, parallel universe. This other reality, right? right well, you know, exactly. as, as part of writing my book, I, I interviewed. Uh, Philip K. Dick's wife, Tessa, mm. and she said that, you know, well, he wrote The Man in the High Castle back in the 60s when, you know, mm. memories of World War II were not, it wasn't that long ago, right? It was uh, only 15 years back then. <laughs> and uh, she said that he actually remembered a timeline where the Nazis and the Japanese won World War II. And when he wrote that book, he was really remembering things mm. as opposed to inventing things mm-hmm. uh, and you firmly believe that and that's you know really really interesting when you get into this idea of multiple timelines mm. yeah it's super interesting um, well where I come down on it is um, I, I think most of it is cognitive bias um, but there's there's definitely the potential for something like this to be, as you say, to be pointing at something that's really interesting. Um, if and again, if uh, one of the things that I found is in looking at the explanations for the for the Mandela effect, there's a couple of problems. Two that I've identified. One is there's a very limited role for consciousness in any of these explanations. Mm. Right, whether it's cognitive bias or parallel universes or simulation argument or there's even a CERN explanation. Um, and the second one is that there's a causality bias, uh, meaning there's an implicit bias that causality only moves in one direction. And I'll explain that a little bit. Mm. So the role of consciousness stuff is basically everything that we've been talking about up to this point, which is that it seems that mind can nudge the probabilities of certain things. And the causality bias is assuming that the future, uh, we think of the future as a probability function of the present, um, meaning that in 10 minutes, there's a good chance that we're still going to be talking. But maybe not, because maybe the internet goes down or something and we're not talking. So you could sort of model that based on what's the likelihood that the internet goes down or my computer dies, and you could get this sort of probability function of us being, uh, of us talking in 10 minutes. But we assume that the past is set in stone, meaning what happened in the past, it always happened that way. Uh, There's no ability for it to ever change. Um, But that's very asymmetrical. Um, It might be true, but 
but most things in the universe uh, seem to have some sort of symmetry to them. Yeah. Now, are you also touching on this idea of uh, like Wheeler's delayed choice experiment? A little uh, bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. We'll keep going. Yeah. yeah. So we we can maybe understand or make a little bit of room for something like the Mandela effect to exist. Uh, if we think of the past as just like the future, a probability function of the present moment, meaning if we change in the, in the present moment, it might actually cause the past to change in a way that lines up with the present, just as it would cause the future to change in a way that lines up with the present. And when I say the future and the past, I don't mean like that it's set in stone. I mean that the, the probability of various things having happened changes. So uh, a common example that I give is whether or not you locked your car this morning. So uh, I don't know if you drove anywhere today, but I did. And I can't remember locking my car. Now, I think that I did because I usually lock my car. But maybe like I, I, could, I could think more about it and, and say, okay, well, maybe I was in a hurry uh, to get in this morning, and I didn't get quite as much sleep as I usually do, both of which are true. And so I perhaps forgot to lock the car. Uh, you can kind of go down all these, you can create these stories basically where you re, you lower the belief that you did lock your car in your own mind. What I'm saying is that when belief changes, it could cause a corresponding change in the probability of some future outcome and a, a change in the probability of the past. <laughs> Meaning that if you did go out you know, after casting doubt in your your own mind, if you did go out and check your car, there's actually a higher likelihood that it's unlocked. Okay, so this so you're is actually called, affecting you're actually affecting the past in this case. Affecting the past. So this is called mental retrocausality. I mean, we we basically uh, our our thoughts or our belief systems in the present moment have an effect um, sort of backwards in time on the past. Could that mean so, the past uh, isn't fixed that, and false memories right. could exist as well? <laughs> that does mean right. that. Yeah. yeah. That the past is just some set of information that can be modified by our consciousness somehow. <laughs> sure. And, you know, you think about it. I've never seen the past. I've never seen the future either. I've only ever seen the present moment. But we talk about these things as though they're they're sort of real. And maybe they're only real, like frozen in time, but um, but they could actually be sort of actually kind of shifting. And so how that connects to the Mandela effect is that you have uh, lots of different people that for some reason um, believe in a, 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 future, a past event that changes. <laughs> and um, so <clears throat> it could be that these things maybe did happen, but as... Uh, as society or different consensus realities basically changed in the present moment, that created a corresponding change to those consensus reality groups in the past, thus resulting in um, the the differences in, in beliefs about certain events. Um, so that's uh, crazy, wild speculation. 
Yeah, I was going to sure. say from a, from a common sense <laughs> point of view, that sounds kind of crazy, right? It's like you are affecting the past. But when you get down to the level of quantum mechanics, right? I mean, I, I referred to the Wheeler's delayed choice experiment, and you know, there's this idea that if light is coming from some galaxy and it has to go around a black hole. I, I was just talking about this with another guest, um, uh, where if the light might go left or right, um, you don't know. That ends up being a, a random thing. But it's not until we look at that light here, and we could be, you know, a thousand light years away, right? So th- that would have happened a thousand years ago. Exactly. Uh, but the choice, you know, as far as the delayed choice experiment, as, as I understand the results, right? And uh, feel free to comment on this. But it, that choice of whether the light goes around the black hole to the left or right doesn't happen until there's an observer that looks at that light, uh, which means basically you've affected the past. Right? That's way. right. Um, in fact, uh, I, I did an experiment on uh, the Jimmy Church radio show um, last year where we looked at the ability of the radio audience to create, uh, to affect the conductivity of a water sample, but backwards in time, which, which was very successful. Okay, so explain that. So, backwards yeah, in yeah. Time. <laughs> so um, it's, it's hard to talk about because we're talking about a timeline here, but. Let's say on a Tuesday, I had a radio show. And uh, on Monday, knowing that we were going to get into this, I set up an experiment where I took two water samples and I measured their conductivity um, using a, it's called electrochemical impedance spectroscopy. But basically, you're just looking at the conductivity of water, which is related to the coherence of the atomic structure, of the water, the molecular structure. And um, made one measurement of one sample, sample A, and I made another measurement of sample B. So we've got two things of water, both from the same source, source, both identical. Now, I did not look at the outcome. I just recorded the data. For both samples? Okay, that's, that's on a, for, both, for both samples. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so I've got sample A and sample B, recorded the data, and didn't look at it. And the data here is just the conductivity of the water. That's on Monday. And on Tuesday, in the Jimmy, Jimmy Church radio show, we asked the listening audience, there's probably 100,000 people or so, to uh, send their intention backwards in time to Monday to when I was doing the experiment and to one of the samples that Jimmy picked, which was sample A, and to... Uh, make that sample more coherent mentally. So imagine all of the water molecules coming together in a nice matrix, in a nice, a nice lattice. And is there a reason you chose to do it with water? Like, is that perhaps more susceptible? <laughs> well, I chose to do it with water because none of the decades of experiments that I had seen into mind matter interaction had used water. Okay. Um, they all used uh, quantum effects, and water. Um, we're basically looking at water has a, a weird ability to polarize itself when it becomes more coherent. So when the when the structure of the water becomes more coherent, like more of a lattice, you get this thing called proton tunneling, which is basically the water ionizing itself, which makes it more conductive. And okay. water seems to be involved in all life as we know it. Uh, which is to say that water is connected to consciousness in some way, meaning plants, animals, humans, we're all mostly water. So there might be something to water 
that's worth looking at, right? So that was that was the theory. Um, and so anyway, we we sent the 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 uh, audience sent their intention backwards in time to um, sample A to make it more coherent, and then we looked at the samples and we found that um, sample B, which was unaffected, had a pretty normal conductivity uh, signature for water, but sample A was an order of magnitude more conductive, meaning the resistance or impedance had gone down tenfold in that mm. same time. But those measurements were taken in the past. Those measurements were taken in the past. So mm -hmm. it's not like somebody could say, well, maybe something affected sample A in the meantime. That's right. But you took the measurement right after you separated the water from the same source, right? Exactly. Yep. Mm. Wow. Well, there you have it. So there's an explanation for the Mandela effect <laughs> that we are actually affecting the past, right? So re retro causality, right? <laughs> so, yeah, from there, um, I, I basically – I don't know if we have time to get into it, but I um, – Sure, we basically started to create um, mini Mandela effects in my office here using this this same device, <laughs> um, which is kind of funny. So um, with the Mandela effect, it's not just it's not people's intention; uh, it's people's beliefs about the past. Right? Um, people aren't intending Nelson Mandela to survive; they're remembering or believing that he did survive, or didn't right. survive, as the case may be. So what yeah. you really want to test for is how do people's belief in the present moment affect the past? So I created this little experiment where I said, okay, I'm going to take this water sample approach and based on, I'm going to measure two water samples. And if one of them is significantly more conductive, meaning that seems to be the one that um, people, uh, uh, it seems to be the one that is being affected somehow. Then I'm going to call my friend. So let, let's say sample A is significantly more conductive. I'm going to call my friend. I'm going to ask her to go to Dave and Buster's, the arcade uh, place, and uh, hang out there for an hour. Don't ask well, questions. Video, video games have to come into this somehow. So that's exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. But if sample B is stronger, I'm going to ask her to go to the park and hang out in the park for an hour. Um, don't ask questions, just do it for science, right? <laughs> and if, if none of the samples show any type of significant signature um, or anomaly, then I will do nothing. So then I, I uh, went to Upwork.com, which is a place where you can hire freelancers for, for gig jobs. And I posted a job where the job was to believe that my friend went to Dave and Buster's. <laughs> so what I wanted to do was hire a bunch of people to believe in a version of the past um, that I hadn't measured yet and so see if she, that could. She didn't tell you. Uh, your friend yeah. didn't tell you. But... So none of this has happened yet. But I'm. Okay. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the result was that I, I was. Uh, I got a community warning from Upwork, and my account was suspended. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. That, that, so, that tends to happen sometimes when you're into this kind of research. <laughs> that's right. So I did what any enterprising uh, capitalist would do uh, facing such uh, such a problem. Is I, I outsourced it 
to India. So I found a company in India that does um, call center work. And I contacted them and I said, listen, I've got a strange request. I will pay you your normal rates, but I want a certain amount of your employees to believe that my friend went to Dave and Buster's, um, you know, a couple days ago. <laughs> and um, is, I have this whole conversation, Dave, because it's really funny. But ultimately, I was able to uh, uh, get them to agree. So we had a manager in India and a bunch of call center people believing uh, each day that she went to Dave and Buster's. Okay. <clears throat> so now back to the experiment. So I run the experiment. Um, while I've got these people believing in a future, in a, in a, an event in the past, I run the experiment, and it turns out that uh, A, the sample A, again, is about an order of magnitude more conductive than sample B. So I send her to Dave and Buster's, and away she goes. So it, it seems like, now, it, it's totally ridiculous, so it might just be me. Um, but we did get a genuine, genuine anomaly in the water. But in this case, this is an experiment that shows that a group of people who, um, who believe something might have a, an effect uh, in the past in, an, in an, a fundamentally indeterminate system that has some determinant causal chain to events in the present moment. Right. But was it really in the past? Um, because they were believing it before you did the measurement, right? Or um, they, no, they actually, um, was it after? Yeah. So, so I, I did the experiment and recorded the results, did not look at it. I see. And Got then it. had the, had the believers believe back into the past where the event, well, to, to believe, uh, that she went to Dave and Buster's, which would have, uh, required that the experiments in the past produce the outcome that it did. <laughs> Right, right, yeah. So gets back to this idea of where is the causality, right? It's almost going backwards from the trip to Dave and Buster's, also tying into this idea of consciousness affecting the physical world, right? Which doesn't really fit into the materialist point of view, right? So it, it may in fact be that we are not 80s PCs that are not connected to anything, but that we are more like networked uh, computers and that we are all part yeah. of some giant network, right? That That's where a lot of this is leading to for sure i think that's a it's, a it's a great metaphor for where it's leading yeah great well that, that those are some very interesting explanations of the mandel effect and uh, your research about mind over matter thanks very much for joining me today uh is there a website you have that people can go to look at to find out more about what you're doing sure you can check out entangled.org or just search uh search entangled um on Google, our consciousness app, and it should show up. Okay, great. Well, thanks very much, Adam, and uh, I hope you'll join us again soon. Thanks, Riz. Look forward to it.